Well, if you happen to be with us for the first time this morning, uh, I want you to know that we are in a series called Inspired, and we started last August in going through the Bible book by book, and this morning we have arrived at the very first of what we call the New Testament letters, the book of Romans, the pearl of the New Testament. I do not think of any of the other letters of the Bible as powerfully as I do the book of Romans. Uh, written by the Apostle Paul, probably while he was at Corinth near the end of his third missionary journey, this letter has been changing the lives of Christians ever since it was written. Every century has seen its impact. In the great ancient church, the theologian Augustine was converted to Christ by his study of the book of Romans. Now, the Apostle Paul winds up his introductory thoughts with these profound words, and, and I think that these probably verses, many would say, are some of their favorites. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, I can't read verse 16 without remembering that I was a group, when I was a teenager, I was a part of a group from church camp that was called the Fellowship of the Unashamed, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And what a lot of people don't know is that verse 17, that singular verse, impacted a struggling, uh, burdened monk by the name of Martin Luther and transformed him out of that struggle into the great Protestant reformer that history records him to be. While in prison, John Bunyan, reading through the book of Romans, was so inspired that he wrote his classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress was first published in uh, 1678. Since then, it's been translated into at least 200 different languages. It's been made into movies, and, and are you ready for this? It has never been out of print. Such is the power of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 3 focus on humanity's sinfulness. Chapter 1, the Gentile world is lost. Chapter 2, the Jewish world is lost. Chapter 3, everybody is lost. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapters 4 and 5 highlight the grace of God. Chapter 6 reminds us that we are dead to sin, and it gives us a glorious picture of baptism. Chapter 7 details our constant battle and struggle with sin. Chapter 8 encourages us with the promises that in all things God works for good for those who love Him and that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, as that passage we read earlier. Chapters 9 through 11 teach us about God's sovereignty. And at the end of chapter 11, Paul launches into this beautiful doxology. It's like he's closing out this, this main section of the book of Romans. And I want to just read the last verse of that doxology. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That brings us to chapter 12, one of my favorites. 
And chapter 12 begins with the word, therefore. It is a transitional word that means, in light of everything that has been written up to this point, and in light of everything you've read to this moment, here is how you should respond. So this morning we're going to explore chapter 12 in order that we can understand our obligation to God for the riches of his grace given to us through Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know that an obligation or a duty is not something that's burdensome, especially when it is motivated by great love. When somebody does something nice for you, we are duty-bound to say thank you, but that's not a burdensome thing to do. It's a joyful thing to express thanks when somebody has done something so good to us. It is not a burden to lay our obligation at the feet of Jesus as an act of worship. And it begins in the 12th chapter with this truth. We have a spiritual obligation to God. Look in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, His pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says our first response to God is a spiritual response. Now, isn't that the way it should be? Shouldn't our first response to any challenge, any issue, any concern, any problem, any dilemma in our life be spiritual? You'd think that would be the case. But as often is, it's most often the opposite. Now, I see that in my own life. Uh, when something is broken at home, uh, my, my philosophy is this. All right, I'm going to tackle this and see if I can fix it. If I can't, then. I'll call the professionals as a last resort, and they can come in and clean up my mess, okay? Now, that's worked a lot of times. Sometimes I can fix the issue, and, and, and it's, a, it's a rewarding thing for me. It saves some money along the way, and it's great. But there are times when I get into something that's way above my pay grade, and by that time, I realize I'm in too deep, and I waste a lot of time, waste a lot of energy, waste a lot of, of, of anguish before I call the professional, and then they have to come in and clean up my mess, now, you'd think, wouldn't you, that we would learn ahead of time that some things are just too hard for us to handle. Spiritually, unfortunately, I apply the same principle. I think I'm going to tackle this spiritual problem, and I'll handle it with my own wisdom, and then if I run into problems, I will call the professional. But shouldn't our first response always to be call, to call the Lord, to, to seek Him out in prayer, the professional, and let His wisdom work in our lives? Just you see, Paul says your first obligation to him is a spiritual obligation. And notice what that spiritual obligation response is. You say, well, how, how do I respond spiritually? Okay, Paul says it. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The word offer here is kind of an interesting word. It's, it has the same kind of thought that we would today use to call up a restaurant and ask for a reservation. Now, when you make a reservation at a restaurant, they, they set aside a table for you. And that table is only for you and your guests. And you can have that table as long as you need it on that evening or that day when you make the reservation. As a matter of fact, that table may sit empty for a while because it is being reserved for you and you alone. 
The word offer means that we reserve our lives, our hearts, our minds, our bodies. We reserve all of us for Jesus Christ alone. We are his as long as he wants us. And we know he wants us for eternity. And why does this text say, offer your bodies as living sacrifices? Wouldn't you think that God said, I want you to offer your spirit? The reason he says bodies is because you cannot separate the spiritual from the physical. The two are inherently connected. Now, we don't, we don't like to think of that. We, we would prefer that we could do things physically that has no impact upon our spirit, and we would prefer that sometimes the spiritual stuff would have no impact upon the things that we do physically. It'd make a life a little bit simpler that way because we could do what we want to do and still be spiritual at the same time, but that does not work. The spirit and the body are inherently connected. And here's the point. Paul knows that if God owns your body, he owns every part of you. Uh, let, let me explain it like this. Have you ever had somebody say, I won't be at the meeting tonight, but I'll be with you in spirit? You ever heard anybody say that? It's kind of a nice, thoughtful thing to say. It's a gracious way to say, uh, I, I won't be able to attend the meeting. But practically speaking, it, it, it's worthless. You know, I mean, it's if your body's not there, I'm here to tell you, your mind and spirit isn't at that meeting either. You can't separate the two. But, but the point is, if your body's there, there's a good chance the rest will follow because you are simply one person. I'm just one person. Your spirit doesn't go anywhere. Your body doesn't go. So when you give your body as a living sacrifice, it means you are giving yourself. Because, you see, it's easy to pledge your mind. It's not so easy to pledge your body to Christ. Paul wrote a little bit later to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, these words. He says, do you not know that your body, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And by being a living sacrifice, it becomes a day-to-day battle to commit our bodies to Jesus Christ. Then Paul goes on with another thought. He says, don't don't let that body, don't let your life, don't let everything that you are be conformed to this world. Now, now for just a moment, picture yourself uh, as a simple lump of clay, all right? That clay will not remain shapeless. It'll either be shaped by the philosophies of this world, or it will be shaped by the power of God, but you will not remain shapeless in this world. And so the decision is yours whether you will bear the stamp of the world or you will bear the stamp of God upon your life. We know that God does not want us to imitate the world and the world's philosophies. That's clear in Scripture. Some, however, go to the opposite extreme by trying to isolate themselves from the world, to become sort of a spiritual recluse. Now, there are problems with that. That that often means that the pendulum swings from one extreme all the way to the other extreme. In other words, sometimes people say, well, if if the worldly person likes broccoli, I'm not going to eat broccoli. If the worldly person drives a car, then I'm going to walk everywhere. And it gets this crazy, absurd isolation. We try to lock ourselves away from the world so that the world doesn't have any impact on us, and unfortunately, we have no impact on 
the world. Now, that's not what God calls us to either. He doesn't call us to imitate the world, obviously, but he doesn't call us to be isolated from the world. What what he wants from us is to be insulated from the world. Now, there's a difference between isolated and insulated. An insulated house doesn't prevent it from existing in sub-zero temperatures. It just protects the inhabitants of that house from the extreme cold. Here's another picture to chew on for a minute. I enjoy seafood, and I, and I rather enjoy the seasoning of salt, maybe too much for my own good. But you'd think, wouldn't you, if ever a food comes pre-salted, it'd be seafood? I mean, come on! The fish and the shell creatures live in the sea, the ocean, all their life. But you take a bite of shrimp cocktail, and there's not even a hint of salt on it. How is that possible? <laughs> It's because the sea creatures are insulated from the salt water. They live in the salt water. They swim and exist all their life in that environment, but they are insulated from the environment. Now, if God can insulate a fish or that tasty little shrimp from the salt water it lives in, then God can insulate us from the power of the world around us if we will let him. You see, it's a toxic environment in which we live, but we don't have to absorb it. It's not isolation, it's insulation. Because you see, that keeps us in the world where we can have an impact on the worldly environment. Now, how do we do this? Paul says it happens through the renewing of our mind, which means to refocus, refresh, and realign your thinking with the mind of God so that He can transform our behavior and lives. Now, a word of caution here, all right? It is easy to think we are continuing to be spiritually faithful when in reality we may be subtly being reshaped by the thoughts and the philosophies of this world. I, I, I've noticed this principle in television programming. Language and images and violence that no longer faze me would have made my grandparents blush and turn off the TV. Anybody else notice that in your life and, and, and how it affects? We have become desensitized so quickly and so easily. Ever so slowly, the world reshapes us if we are not careful. I, I want you to consider this, uh, this image for just a moment. Let's say a person starts out being closer to God than the world is. And we got a, we got a picture here on the screen I, I want you to take a look at. So you, you know, the Bible represents God's principles and standards. The, uh, the, the person you see there in the image is actually standing closer to the Word of God than he is the world. Uh, you see, we, we want to distance ourselves from the world, insulate it again. We want to stay close to God's principles. Now, here's, here's the problem that often happens with us, and that is we keep the same distance from the philosophies and the principles of the world, and yet as the world moves ever farther God, away from God, we keep stay, keeping our distance from the world. The problem is it's not about just keeping this same distance from the world. It's about being close to God. And what happens is that in our efforts to keep our same distance from the world, we actually fall farther away from God's principles ourselves. We're more concerned about the distance factor with the world than we are the distance factor with God. Be careful. Do not let the world subtly reshape you. Keep your mind renewed. Be a daily living sacrifice. Conform to his image, not conform to the shape of the world. Because I'm telling you, folks, the world's not in a good shape. 
So our first obligation is that of a spiritual obligation. Second obligation Paul deals with here, he says we have a relational obligation. Would you look at verses 3 through 8? For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of, of yourself, or do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. The phrase, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, reminds us that we have a moral obligation to be a team player in the body of Christ. You see, it isn't about me, and it isn't about you. And when we make it all about us, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't want to do it this way, I don't want to do it that, when it's all about us, it ruins everything because nothing can work in harmony. Jeff Fall, who is a dear friend of mine who preaches in Mooresville, says that one of his favorite quotes is this, the smallest package in the world is the person who is wrapped up in himself. Isn't that the truth? And, and, and you see, God calls us not to be wrapped up in ourselves. Paul makes it clear that everything Jesus died for will come to nothing if we don't work together like a well-oiled machine, or as Paul puts it here, a harmonious body. Now, I'm convinced that none of us in this world want to be alone. I think we want relationship. I, I think that's why the church matters so much. God knew that. God designed us and created us. He knew we are relational people. After all, we serve a relational God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who are in perfect harmony together. They, it is one God. And so we are these relational people and in the church, we have this obligation to be relational with one another for the good of the body, not just our own, God, uh, our own good. Preacher Rick actually said, we are incredibly, incurably relational. God has designed the need for community into the spiritual DNA of every person. Now, there are a lot of ways uh, here at, at Sherwood Oaks, I think, to help build relationships. We, we have classes uh, on, on Sunday morning. We have classes on Wednesday night. We have them through the week, a variety of Bible studies at different times. There are ministry teams. There are mission teams that one can participate in. There are support groups, and there are other ways. Additionally, we have a great team of people who are working on developing life groups for and in our congregation. Now, we're going to be telling you more about those in the weeks to come, but here is a golden opportunity right now for us to help increase the relational life of this congregation. If you're interested specifically right now at leading one of these life groups, or if you're interested in being a part of a life group, go on to our website, will you please? And, and up at the top, one of the tabs says adults. Click on adults, and you'll go down, and you'll see life groups. And, and there you can fill out a form that will help you connect with this team, especially, especially, they got some leadership training coming up. And, and if any of you prefers to be a leader, boy, we would love it if you would connect with that in a way that will help us be more relational. Because you see, we are a body, and a body has to work together harmoniously relationally if the body's going to survive.
And I'm always amazed at how our body functions. You know, I get up in the morning, go to bed at night, and I never stop to think about how my body has operated harmoniously because it just works like I think it should work. But I fail to thank my heart for beating 100,000 times per minute. You know, that's amazing. It, it sends the blood coursing through 60,000 miles of blood vessels if they were laid end to end. That's amazing. You blink 25 times a minute. You have 45 miles of nerves in the skin. Nerve impulses go back and forth from your body to the brain at 170 miles an hour, except during sermons when they experience suspended animation. All of that is the harmony in the body. One body works together for the whole. Our best spiritual value, folks, is not in our individuality, but how our individuality makes the whole operate smoothly. So whether it is serving or teaching or encouraging or giving or leading or extending mercy, let us do it for the Lord and His body, not our own advancement. You see, we have a relational obligation to one another in Christ. The, the, last, the third principle here, the third obligation that Paul writes about is a, a personal obligation. Now, because God understands us from the inside out, God has the capacity, folks, to, to, to look into your mind, to look into your soul and know who you are, and, and he knows whether or not you and I are being living sacrifices. He knows whether we are honestly, genuinely committed to him. However, I don't know that when I look at you. I cannot get inside your mind to know what's going on in there. I cannot look into the depths of your soul to see what your relationship with the Lord is like. The only way I know what's going on in your life, as a matter of fact, the only way you know what's going on in my life, because you can't read my mind, you can't read my soul, the, o- the only way we can assess one another is by the actions and the deeds of our lives. You may not recognize my motives, but you can most certainly recognize my actions. And when my actions do not match with my announced motives, we got a problem. You see, actions are important. That's why Jesus used so many action words in his messages. His sermons are filled with words like go, do, turn, feed, clothe, help. And you go right down the list and and they're calling us to action. That's also why Jesus was so harsh on the hypocrites, those people whose lives contradicted their words. You know what a hypocrite is. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln once described a hypocrite as the man who murdered both his parents and then pleaded for mercy on the grounds that he was an orphan. You see, it's always easy to spot hypocrisy in somebody else, never easy to see it in ourselves. To claim one thing and to live another is the greatest insult to our faith. Nothing, nothing is so damaging to an earnest seeker of the truth than to be misled and deceived by one who does not practice in action what he proclaims in word. Nobody likes a hypocrite. And so that's why I believe Paul writes this last section. This is how a genuine genuine living sacrifice 
behaves. Now, now let me suggest, too, that when we get into this passage here, beginning in verse 9, that Paul literally bookends this passage with two principles that are the overriding principles of this passage. The first is the first phrase of verse 9. It says, love must be sincere. That's an overriding principle. Every time that love is enacted in your life, it must be sincere. But what does sincere love do? Ah, that's where Paul goes ahead, and he just starts listing all these kinds of things to say, you want to know what sincere love is? This is sincere love. Now, let's read it. Uh, chapter 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, haughty, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Paul says, you want, you want to know how sincere, act, uh, sincere love behaves or acts? This is it. Now, to add one more thought, Paul puts this second bookend at the very end that is an overarching theme as well. Verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There you go. Don't let the world pull you into its evil philosophies or actions or deeds, you overcome the evil around you with your good. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something this week. It's not, not a hard thing. I'm going to ask you to take verses 9 through 21 and either do this, hand copy them on a sheet of paper or print them off of your computer, I don't care which one, and tape them to your refrigerator, to your mirror, put them on your desk, put them somewhere where you can read this passage every day. If you want to, put it on your iPhone or your iPad or one of your other phones or tablets. Uh, make it your screensaver on your desktop computer if you're still using one. Make sure you see this every day because I want you and I need this to be reminded of what it means to be a living sacrifice. How am I going to behave today? How am I going to act today? Okay, here's my guidelines. And then I'd also like, you to, act, like to ask you to memorize the bookends. Love must be sincere. That's pretty simple. Would you say it with me? Love must be sincere. And then memorize the last verse, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if you will take this week and make that a focus of your life, memorize those bookend verses and begin to live this out, it will change who we are. You see, when we do this, we are living sacrifices. Joseph Bow was enrolled in the Academy of Fine Arts in Krakow, 
Poland when Poland was invaded during World War II. Because he was a skilled artist and he had a great talent for Gothic lettering, he was not interred in the concentration camp under hard labor. He was placed in charge of making signs and documents by the Nazi SS troops who were over the camp. Secretly, Joseph Bau forged false documents and identity papers when nobody else was looking, and he secured the release of more than 400 Jewish captives. When asked after the war why he did not forge documents for himself, he simply replied, then who would have done it for the others? You see, it is our spiritual obligation, relationally, personally, spiritually, to help others secure release from the captivity of sin through Jesus Christ. And when you live as a living sacrifice, loving sincerely, overcoming evil with good, it will help others find the Savior. If we don't do it, who will? The, the, the whole book of Romans leads to this point of action. And so today, our challenge is to become living sacrifices for Christ, holy and acceptable to God.